Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. Hello, everybody. Today, I am speaking with my beautiful sister, Marcy Alvis Walker, and we're going to be discussing her book, Everybody Come Alive, that was recently released. So, Marcy... Introduce yourself in whatever way feels most authentic. Well, I'm Tasha's sister. You are. Truly. (laughs) And um, I'm a writer. I write about intersectionality mostly. I like to think about how we are treating others in the world and how we can be better humans to one another. So if you are into that kind of thing, that's what I'm about. Mm. I'm about that kind of thing, Marcy. (laughs) I know, I know. So I wanna start with page one, page one of, of your memoir. And it was this first line that literally just made me fall in love with the book. You said, I was born a reflection of the divine. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it it just, whoo, it just the way that that the sentence landed in my spirit. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm glad for that. Truly. And so when did you, at what point in your life were you very sure, where you knew just without a doubt that you were a part of the divine, that the divine was in you? I'm not even gonna lie. I think. Always, mm-hmm. despite things that that tried to tell me that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But I even think when I was a kid, I thought perhaps I was the divine. Like I seriously think I thought, I remember having this moment when I was a kid where I was astonished that I was me and everyone else was not me. And we all have that. But I remember it it um it depressed me for a while as a kid. Like I I took it hard. Like I took it like, what do you mean everyone else is a me? You know, <laughs> like it was really hard for me to understand because I really did feel that strongly about my my presence in the world. I think that's the way all children should feel. And then as you know, it, and I don't really get into a lot of my, of tr- all the traumatic things that happened to me in this book. I didn't really stay in that space for months on a, at a time writing it. I didn't think that I had. And also I, I wasn't sure if I trusted the people that, because you don't write a book alone. You write it with an editor, you write it with the publisher. And I'll be honest, I wasn't sure that I trusted them with all of my story. So I feel like every kid should have that kind of audacious knowing just they just where you just know I am of the divine I am divine it is all about me mine was ripped away pretty quickly however it doesn't mean that I changed my mind about the agreement. I was still in a full agreement with it. It's just that everybody else wasn't agreeing with me. But I was in full agreement that I was part of the divine. And for me, that did I didn't need to know a thing about the Bible or Jesus or any of that. I just knew that there was a greatness out there and that greatness was within me. Marcy, there's a part of your book, and I, I didn't expect myself to, to name this, but since, you know, you mentioned, like, going through some things, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a part of your book that I, I resonated with a lot of it, but where you talk about being called for, you know, at an early age and for a long time being called ugly. Yeah. 
And it took me back to elementary school, which was my introduction into the ugliness of, of what can be with children. Uh, and being called blackie mm -hmm. and being being made fun of because of my nose which they thought was too big and my nose is perfect but anyways okay, so um, and and being made fun of because I had really skinny legs and um yeah just a lot of name calls yeah and so what I hear you saying is that there was a point in your life or it was just the divine, just you and the divine. Yeah, yeah. And even when people, and I, and what I say in the book is that it was like black and ugly and they were really yeah. close together. They were always close together. Sometimes people would throw a little like, you know, darky, mm -hmm. black, this, that, and the other into it. Yeah. But the weird thing is that even when that was happening to me, I would look in the mirror and be like, oh, I'm the shit. I don't understand what they're not seeing. Like, I really, I didn't see that. I never looked in the mirror and thought that I was ugly. I, and I never looked into the mirror and thought that my blackness was an issue. I thought, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it must be so sad not to have this black skin. I really did. I really thought, I thought that I thought white people were bored mm -hmm. with their time. I remember thinking that my really light skinned cousin as beautiful as she was, and she is beautiful to this day. But I remember thinking, man, it must be hard to not be as interesting as this chocolate over here. I honest to God did think that as a kid mm -hmm. because. Number one, I had a mom who was telling me that, but also I just saw it like I and I and I just and I would see other like my crushes when I was growing up. I was always crushing on someone who was as dark as I was. Um, it's kind of surprising that I married such a very white man. <laughs> um, the second time around because I really I really loved black people like it never even occurred to me that there was anything ever wrong with our, with my blackness I just thought the world needed to catch up Ooh. I just didn't and I really, when I when I think about it, I really did have those thoughts of, as a kid. I really was that kid that was just like, one day, I'm going to show you. One day, you will see. I don't know if we're all the way there yet. But if I would have been a kid who saw half, even a thimble of the representation I see of myself in the world today, right? If I had seen Lupita, Yango, I would have lost my ever-loving mind and I would have made everyone sit down and watch everything that she said because it just would have validated everything that I believed about myself. It's also another thing that happened as I got older when I would tell people about being called black and ugly or, you know, I'd be dating a guy and I'd mention, you know, like, well, oh, I'm surprised that you, you know, are into dark skinned girls or this, that, and the other. And I would have so many people say, well, you're not, you're not that dark. And I took offense to that because I was just like, what is that dark? What is the line? What, what do you mean I'm not that dark? Like, I'm just like, it just really irritated me that there was even this sort of color hue stick it just made no sense to me I'm like either you're dark or you're not and I just was like and also I but I was also offended because I was like don't take that from me because I'm not trying to out, be out here just being basic I'm like you know if I'm gonna be black I'm gonna be black I'm black be black black <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so, you know, you even me mentioning Lupita, I was um, 
just sitting outside and just kind of scrolling on social media and and every now and then something will will show like the most beautiful yeah. dark-skinned black model like right. oh, mm-hmm. and her skin is so smooth mm-hmm. just radiant right and literally right before I got on Zoom, I was thinking about this memory of, of being a teenager looking in the mirror mm-hmm. and saying to myself, they don't like me, but I look really good. Like, I like me. Exactly. And, you know, another icon for me, another serious moment, like dark girl energy moment for me and my life. And I've been wanting to write about her and I haven't really figured out how was when Mary J. Blige came on the scene. When Mary J. Blige arrived and she was a dark-skinned Black girl and everybody was listening to her. And not only did she show up as no one, like there was no Supremes, Motown moment where they cleaned her up and put her in an evening gown and told her how the song cleans English. That when she opened her mouth, I recognized her as like anyone in my family. Like that was so big to me. And I think people don't, I, I wish that like, like my, my kid doesn't understand it in that way. Like she doesn't understand. They don't understand um, Mary J. Blige or the big deal with Lapita. They have puppets. The Muppets were doing all the representation. So they grew up with a good deal of representation. What they didn't have representation was, was their queer identity or their gender identity. But like, as far as Blackness went, I describe it as this. You know how there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's this whole like period where they say the Lord isn't speaking, right? That's what it felt like. It felt like we went through the civil rights movement and then nothing, 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 nothing for Black women. And I need to clarify this. Black women and girls who are not in the college halls, who are not in academic halls, who are just making their way in the world. We had nothing on TV. We had good times in in, uh, the Jeffersons and nobody was trying to be Florida and nobody was trying to be Mrs. Jefferson, right? We didn't want to grow up and be that, right? We didn't want to be the woman beating. um, We didn't want that. For us dark skinned girls, we didn't have like Penny was light skinned, you right. know. Um, we didn't want to be D from what's happening because that's right, that's right. I love D, but yeah. like, I didn't be her, right? Mm-hmm. Honestly, couldn't relate to 2D all that much. Just thinking about 2D, yes, <laughs> right? She was wealthy, mm-hmm. and um. And then the 80s, late mid 80s hit, right? Mid late 80s hit. And suddenly we have Mary, the, the 90s, we have Mary J. And we start to see ourselves on TV and in movies every now and again. You know what I mean? Because, you know, we just, we just didn't have it. And I talk about that in the book, that there's a lot of representation of Black beauty that's very Eurocentric. And so when you have someone like a Mary J. Blige come out um, and she looks like us and she's out there, nan hair extension, she's just doing the thing, right? And she's dancing like we do and our backyards and at our barbecues, right? We lost our minds. And she's dating a boy that looks like the boy down the street. Now he wasn't any good, y'all. Like we were glad Not that, that at all. He looked like Ray Ray from around <laughs> the corner. 
for real. It's like, I don't think people understand that representation is more than just you put someone on the TV screen that's the same shade. It's also the shades of life that they live. Mm. You really want to feel that too. You want to feel that they are living a life that you can easily see yourself in, or they could, you could see them coming to your house and they're not going to look down upon you. And Diane Carroll from Dynasty wasn't going to come to my house. And if she did, we would have been embarrassed. My grandmother would have finally had to open that, that guest soap. <laughs> <laughs> out there for years, wrapped in the plastic. Yes. <laughs> if Diane Carroll would have finally come to our house. Mm-hmm. Um. You mentioned something a minute ago about like not knowing if your stories, if certain experiences could be, could be held. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any writers have publicly talked about this or not, but that is, that is privilege when you can write a book and you can tell your story and you don't have to think about like, will this be held? Will it be respected, understood? Is it safe? Yes. I'm so glad we're talking about this. To be for real, after my book came out, I I went into a deep state of depression. I was really just kind of, the whole experience had been so traumatic. The whole book publishing experience had not been a lovely one for me. Um, I hit a lot of um, a lot of microaggressions, a lot of macroaggressions. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, once the book was out, you just kind of, I, I, I can't explain it. Your stories, your stories out there and people are buying it and they're reading it and, that, and that's all great and lovely. But there is this thing that happens in the writing world. And I don't know why writers just don't talk about it because if we did talk about it, it would dispel it. There is this pressure to sell a book. And not every writer is treated equally. And you are not treated on merit. So it's not about the worth of your writing. They will tell you that it is. It's not. There are plenty of books that will outsell mine simply because they're easier stories. They are. They are are more of an escapism. They are not going to, no one really wants to think about the Black child that didn't have the same experience that you had. No, you know, like there's a lot that goes into it. When people, I've been, studying recently um, for my next book. I've been studying um, the lives of Zora Neale Hurston, um, the lives of Zora Neale Hurston, of um, Octavia Butler, um, Nella Larson, so many Black female writers that never received the accolades that their writing is receiving now that they're gone. And I had to come to this realization that nine times out of 10, that will be the truth for my writing as well, for your writing as well, is that when we're gone, that's probably when our books will be the most valued, the most treasured. And that's a sad reality in this country, but it's it's very true. Um, Lorraine Hansberry, Audre Lorde, there's so many that when they were actually writing, Um, white folks weren't reading them, (laughs) you know, not outside of the academic halls. So I, I try not to think too much about it, but it is one thing for a white woman to write about her sexual assault and sell a book. It is a different thing for a black woman to write about her sexual assault and sell a book. Okay. So, and here's the biggest difference. When the white woman talks about her sexual assault, it is considered universal. That's a universal trauma because white is the normative. When a 
Black woman writes about her sexual assault, it's considered marginal because that's not, the, the Blackness doesn't make it relatable to everyone. I disagree with that. I say that sexual assault, sexual assault, of course it's relatable. What does it matter if the person's Asian, Black, white, whatever? But that is not the world that we live in. And the reason that I know this to be true is if you look at the memoirs that have been written, and I'm here to tell you that if those authors, the best-selling memoirs, the ones that we, you know, everyone's reading, if you, if they weren't written by white people, I, I don't think they would be the book that everyone was reading. You know, I don't, unless you're like Michelle Obama, you know? Yeah. Black, the first Black first lady, right? Or you're Viola Davis, or you're, you know, and there's, I read and love those books too, but if you are just a writer who writes memoir and personal essay, if you aren't willing to be a spectacle, right? If you aren't willing to put your pain on the page and let it be the thing that people get their trauma high off of, you're not, I don't think that you can succeed as far as the person that literally can write a book about breaking a nail. I broke a nail. I'm going to write a book about it. (laughs) The world will go bananas. I recently had this conversation with um, two friends who are writers and they're both white and we were talking about books that come out and I felt some kind of way about a certain book. It wasn't anything against the writer. It wasn't anything against the author. It wasn't anything against their work. Their work, I'm sure, is stellar. But I do say, I don't need to read a book about that experience. I did say that because I'm like, I've had the same experience. I don't really, her experience isn't going to compare to my experience. Um, And it's, you know, like, I'm like, I'm like, because my experience of it comes from a place of marginalization and also comes from a place of Black women not being desirable on the main stage, right, of of this life, of this world. And then not only not being desirable as a Black woman, but as a dark-skinned Black woman. And now that I no longer am starving my body to be a certain size now that I'm a plus size to be a dark-skinned woman who is plus size Mm -hmm. I am not no one is gonna no one is gonna wonder oh my gosh not you that didn't happen to you everyone's gonna look at it like well of course that happened to you you're dark you're fat you're you're um not as desirable as you should be you have not conformed but I'm just like, why are people nuts over this? Like, I, I don't get it because I, I, I under, I'm trying to be really sensitive here because I don't want to knock anyone's work, but it breaks my heart because I know of other books, not even my book, but I just know of other books that will not do as well, that publishers will not get behind in the same way. And that's the other thing I'm like, is the book do, doing well because the book really is that good or is a, a book, and I'm not just talking about one specific book, is a book doing well because the publisher paid for that book to be on, on all the front tables. And, and when you walk in, I don't think people realize when you walk into a bookstore and a book is on a table, a publisher paid for that book to be there um, because the publisher paid for that author to actually have a press tour where they get to go to different events and they were willing to set it up and they were willing to, you know, make sure that the books were there and to, um, that's a really big deal for an author, for, for, um, a publishing house to say, we believe this much in your work. I don't think people realize that, that sometimes the book 
It's not about the book being the best book. It's about the book being the best market book. That's just the truth. That doesn't take anything away from anyone's talent because you do have to be a good writer to get a publishing deal. But well, you have to be able to write a book. To be able to be able to like, you know, you don't have to be James Baldwin, but you do need to be able to complete the project. I'll say that. Or have a really great ghostwriter. Or have a really great ghostwriter. That's that's true. <laughs> I think people just don't realize that. And so, and so you feel I, I I've said before in stories that I didn't write four years because I wrote, I, I didn't publish for years. I wrote, but I didn't share my work for years because I worked at Borders Books and Music and I saw how books were sold. And when I saw how books were sold and marketed and I saw books that I loved not be the ones that were upheld as the standard, brilliant writers, um, poets that I loved, um, not get the same attention. It really broke my heart and it broke my heart so much that I would say for 20, 30 years, I didn't even consider publishing anything. I wrote for myself and I, I didn't share it with anyone. And then that day when I finally hit publish on a blog, I still was skeptical. And I remember saying, and my prayer to God was, they say you're abundant. I want to see you be abundant. Mm. I really was like, I'm not going to do a thing to promote this. I'm going to see what happens. And so I couldn't figure out the RSS feed thing on the, on the Squarespace when I was doing the, I, I was like, I don't know how, how to figure out for people to get it in their mailbox. Like I couldn't figure that out. So this is back in the day. I couldn't figure it out. So I started an Instagram feed simply to tell people when I have published a new essay. And my rule for that was that I wouldn't at people, like I wouldn't at like publishing houses. I wouldn't like tag people to get special favor or attention. And I would use no hashtags because I really was like, putting out my fleece I was really like God I want to see you you they say you so abundant I want to see abundance it's silly because I look back on my life and God was always abundant abundance is just in the divine like I, I it, it always been there but for me I needed to do that for my work I needed to not have the disappointment of putting yourself out there and putting all the hashtags and doing all the stuff and being ignored. So everything was gravy. Everything was gravy that happened with Black Coffee, White Friends. And then when an editor asked if they could fly down to Austin to talk to me about a book, I was hesitant even still because I was afraid of the publishing world. And then I lost that editor um, when my kid came out and that was a harsh blow. Not because the editor wanted to leave me. Let me be clear. The editor did not want to leave me, but the publishing house had certain rules. So I, I lost my fierce ally, the person who was, I mean, when someone, when you have an editor who will fly down to meet you and talk about a book, that editor is going to do all that they can to see that your book makes it in the world. And honestly, not a lot of editors are flying on planes to go meet folk. I don't think, but no one was ever going to be as attentive as that editor was. And so the book is out. I'm, I'm glad to have done it. It was a great experience for my own understanding of the world. It showed me just how far we are from being an equitable compassionate world <laughs> like it really didn't show me that and um I have been loving the feedback from people like you my friends really shocked me because I didn't even want y'all to read the book 
we have a group chat and I was just like, I don't want to be like that friend that's like, read my book, <laughs> listen to my song. You know, like, I, like, I didn't want to burden y'all with it. And I didn't want y'all to feel obligated. Like, um, you know, but I don't know why I thought that because no lie, I'm not even being funny with this, y'all. We're all baddies. Like, I'm like, we are rolling with a bunch of baddies. I don't know why. I, I, I think I had imposter syndrome just within the group. Like, I was like, surely not. <laughs> like, I just really felt a little intimidated by all that every single one of us is capable of doing and is doing and more. So I just, so, you know, um, Shay was the first one who was reading it because we had an event that we were going to do. But um, to have Shay like taking the book on vacation, taking the book out for drinks, taking the book to the pool, like Shay was like taking this book and texting me all the time. And it, it really made me feel because y'all know me so much better than um people who've known me for years like we 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 got to know each other wow. quick <laughs> and um because we were talking about all the traumas wow. in real time so I don't know something about that just really moved the needle for me like it just it just kind of shifted my perspective of what a book could be and when I realized that a book could be a kind of community and that I don't have to perform it 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 really freed me up to just enjoy it being in the world here's what I'll say about your book I am a slow reader like it it takes me sometimes months because I'm reading like four or five books at a time it takes me a while and ADHD and life and all the things. Mm -hmm. And when people have told me, hey, like I read your book and I couldn't put it down. And I'm like, you read all of that deeply traumatic, like, because I just self-published. I was like, I'm putting all my trauma in here. I'm just vomiting all my trauma. And I, I don't know how to take that when people tell me that. But when I read Everybody Come Alive, I, I wanted to make space for it so I finished some other things mm -hmm. and I scheduled in like it's it's time for this book just when I started reading it and 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 I'm underlining I mean this is first page you know and 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 writing in in the margins and um so many pages it's full of of that like yes and this and <laughs> um exclamation marks all over the page this book for me felt personal. Like you're not just telling your story. You thought you were telling your story, but you're telling my story too. You you're know, telling, you're telling the collective. This is our, by the way, this is our book. Can I just tell you, Tasha, this is the funny thing. I have not read your book yet. Let me tell uh -huh. you. Super stressful. No, no, no. I can handle the trauma. I've read other, but. I met you while I was writing my book. Mm -hmm. No lie. I looked at you and I was just like, I think our stories are going to be really similar. And so I'm going to wait on this book until I'm done with this book that I'm trying to write. Because I knew, I was just like, I just know. I can just look at her and know that's my story too. So it's so funny that you said that. And I'm now in a space where I can go and read it. Like it took, again, like the book writing thing is not just the writing, it's the release of the book. Like there's a period of where you're just interviewing a lot. Yes. Or you're interviewing a little or... But you're you're with the book in the world for a while, and it's very vulnerable space to be in. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel that vulnerability nearly as much. Um, so I appreciate you saying that yeah. because I feel that way about you. Just you know, 
you are like a walking memoir to me, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 you're my Leo sister. Your birthday is coming up. My birthday is coming up. So it does feel like we're kindred spirits. And I finished this book in about four days. Wow. Um, I just, it was like just drinking your words, just oof, like, wow. Like I, there was just so much. And, you know, and I text you and, you and you, you were saying, you know, I wanted to make this book black as fuck. I did. <laughs> Tell I did. me. I did. When you were writing it, who were the writers that kind of, whose energy or spirit was moving through you? Who was inspiring this Black as Fuck book? My mom, for one. Mm-hmm. My, my, my sisters, my um, biological sisters, um, because they do not code switch ever. They show up wherever they are, Black as Fuck. Yeah. They- never code switch I've always struggled with that like I I find myself less and less willing I can code switch other things I can code switch from being my laid-back self to a professional self but I refuse to code switch my blackness anymore and there's a difference because there are many stars who are professional all the time but they're also just black as fuck all the time I was told that that wasn't possible when I was growing up, but I've seen how it is. And it's not only possible, it's necessary. It's so necessary. You're already navigating so much. You need to take that into work, into, you know, wherever you're going into spaces with you. So that's really who I channel the most, I will say. But I thought a lot about Toni Morrison. I thought a lot about her. And I thought a lot about the white gays. And my first editor was, and my second editor, I had three different ones. I was assigned to three, but my first and my second editors were really good about reminding me to not pay attention to that. Like it, they, and they're not black women. One is, um, Asian American and one is a white woman and they both were really good at saying we want more of you and however that comes out that's what we want and that that it was very helpful for that hurdle of not worrying about how white people were going going to read or like one of the things I started out doing I started putting out putting all these um footnotes like I had the first draft, I think I had, I had so many footnotes because I was like, they don't know what Glover's Maine is. Let me tell them what Glover's Maine is. They don't know what colorism is. Let me tell them what colorism is. They may not know what Roots is. Let me tell them what Roots is. And then I finally was just like, listen, <laughs> I have had to Google so much white stuff just to read a dang book from Shakespeare to uh, I don't know what the latest Sex in the City or, or Devil Wears Prada. I've had to Google some stuff that just is not of my world to understand what the heck a book was talking about or what what was the big deal, right? So, um, and no one put footnotes in. So, <laughs> I, you know, with the products that they like and the products that they use and what's in their cut cabinet. So being able to let my guard down on that was really great. I did just take out all the footnotes. If you didn't know who Public Enemy was, if you didn't know the names of some of the people and some of the um, prose pieces, you could Google it. If you didn't know who um, Tia Bowman was, I, you know, whoever it was, I was just, or whatever it was, whatever I was talking about, I just kind of, you know, I remember um, when I was doing an audio book, the, I loved the woman who was my um, director, um, the producer and director, the person who tells you, you know, go back and just say that again. But she had said this, she had asked me about, you know, um, the down, down, baby, down, down the road. She had asked me like, well, 
because she wasn't understanding why I was singing it. And I was like, well, I've never said it in my life. Like, I don't know how to recite that. That's just something that we sang. And it was really funny because she was like, um, well, who wrote it? And I was like, child, I don't know who wrote that. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, so I had all those kind of markers in and then I took them all out and it's been fine. It's fine. <laughs> you know, it's fine. Oh, Marcy, I had big like stars and underlines on that part where you were reciting. I'm looking for the page. I can't even find the page. But um, at the beginning, it's um yeah. The, those those black references. Right. Um, right. you know, at the beginning of, of your book, you've got the the um like the mantra. You can roll your eyes, you can stump your feet, but this black girl, you show sure can't be. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that takes me back. I'd forgotten about that. Right. And then I just wanna I just wanna read the down down baby because it was like it, it made me chuck. And and so down down baby, down down the roller coaster, sweet sweet baby. I I I love you so. Shimmy shimmy cocoa pop, shimmy shimmy pee. Shimmy shimmy cocoa pop, shimmy shimmy soul. Shimmy shimmy cocoa pop, shimmy shimmy cow. <laughs> and so uh and you're right, we don't know who wrote it. I don't know who wrote that. And it, <laughs> it was funny because I sang it on the audio and I had a black engineer and she was like, okay, but now can you go back and recite it? And I recited it like that. And I and I was like, and it felt really funny. And um, but before I did, I was like, recite it. And I looked at the black guy, um, Jordan, and he looked at me and he just went. He just shook his head real slow, like, girl, no. You know you can't just recite that. You know you're going to have to sing that. And it was so <laughs> affirming because <laughs> then I could just sing it as I would have as a kid because that's what we did as kids. It was just a hand game or jump rope game or double dutch or whatever it was, but that, however you were using it. I only used it as a hand game, but I've seen <laughs> ways they have added on to it they they yeah. got kinds of new moves to it so it's that that I wanted because I wanted people to understand that there that there's a whole different way of being American in this in this um country that's not just black that's black American right that's not just Black American, that's just American. I mean, it's just as American as the little girls singing um, whatever jump rope songs they sang, the little white girls say. I don't know if they did. I don't remember doing jump rope songs with my little white friends, but you know, I just needed, it's just as American as the Itsy Bitsy Spider. Like, I don't know a Black child who didn't know that. Um, so my goal with the book was that I wanted people that, because most white people don't know a Black person that intimately. And what I wanted them to do is to know that those all about me books, those blue books with the white letters and they had like the mm -hmm. big period, my answers would be entirely different. Not only would my answers be different, there are going to be some things on the page that may not make it on the page of a universal white normative, like a mantra. <laughs> um, and I just needed for people to understand that there are things about my childhood that you're going to recognize in your own childhood, but there are things that are going to make my childhood have a different flavor to it. And that is to be celebrated and rejoice. But most of all, I wanted when my sisters read this book, my the ones who grew up with me, I wanted them to recognize me in it, you know, like and recognize us in it. And to have the best thing has been to have cousins that I haven't talked to in years be like, girl, I bought your book. I am reading it. Yes, it was like that. That has been flipping amazing and for them 
to feel seen in the world because I told my story is kind of crazy to me. That kind of mind blowing to me. It's just it's it's blown my mind. Excuse me. Um, to have shocking, like to have cousins that I grew up with that we that went through the same traumas, right? To be able to say, I have my cousin Tony was just like Auntie Nada's house was just like that. Talk mm-hmm. about my mother's house. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean it's 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 beautiful. And and it it makes me think you know, at the rate of all these Black books <laughs> historically being banned, it feels like even more are being banned mm-hmm. uh, right now. And it's not just these books being banned, it's a major and important part of history. Our history is being banned. It's, it's, I can't even express to you how much I'm in this space right now. How much... I am researching all that we have lost and are continuing to lose. And I, 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 I can't, I don't know what the solution is. I really don't. But I know that we cannot wait for white people to get it. I used to think, even at the back of my book, I was like, the last thing I said was, you know, don't let this be the only Black writer. Mm-hmm. I feel very strongly today that I'm not sure that we can rely on them to do that work because they never have. And I, and I mean, I'm talking about the publishing industry just has not. And we had a quick moment in 2020, right? And God bless you, if you had a book out in 2020, you probably did all right. You probably had some people go out and buy your book and, you know, support you. I had major support during that time. But now that is over. And what I don't want to do is to wait for someone else to have to die before someone says that our books are important. Our book should not be the antidote to terrorism. Our books should be the necessary reading to prevent the terrorism from even happening. But the fact is, it's the opposite way. I was just reading, I've been reading um, William Still, who was one of the major players of the Underground Railroad, um, Black man lived in the North. He kept so many letters from people who actually traveled on the Underground Railroad and he put them in a book. And this book is public domain. It's public domain, right? I have been spending the last week just reading the stories of people who traveled the Underground Railroad. They were really, thank God for this. They had the presence of mind to, I I can't express to y'all how much of history we've lost, like letters, things of that nature. But the fact that William still, in his mind thought, I'm gonna keep all these letters, I'm gonna keep all these, slave ad- adverts to to runaway slave adverts he kept those so he would show the person's runaway slave advert then like the person would give there once they got to their destination they took down before they did anything they took down their whole entire story because they wanted to get it right then and there because they didn't want people to forget because trauma does that There are a lot of stories of my trauma that I don't remember, that I can't tell you about. They're in my body. I feel them. But because they're so traumatic, your body, your mind is like, we need to live. We've got to forget that. We have to literally forget what that was, right? And so you being a therapist knows this. So, you know, a lot of times you're doing something and you're just like, oh, why am I feeling this way? It's probably some 
unspoken trauma that you have repressed. So before these traumatized people could repress the story, they wrote it down. And then they kept the, he kept all the letters because he was the person they would give, they would try to write, get a letter or a word back to their family to let them know I have made it, I am free. I, this is what happened to me. Beautiful. Like the kind of beauty in these stories. But I'll tell you one thing that if we actually, if this book were something that was in print and instead of them fucking around with To Kill a Mockingbird, they actually had kids read these letters and this story, Ron DeSantis would see that man, one of them was like, thank God I'm a blacksmith. And I use my, thank goodness I have those years of black, Nan, one of them (laughs) ever said anything near that. Not a one of them said something good about slavery that that they took away with them. Nothing, nothing at all. There are letters of spouses who left the spouse that they love, women who left their children that they loved. Do you know what it would take from, do you know how bad things would have to be for me to up and leave Max? Good God, I don't think we understand how much trauma it would take for a mother to need to go. And then get to the other side and try to get your children to cross with you, to get them across with you. I don't think we understand the, the amount of trauma. So when I see, see my book and I read those stories, oh, yeah. and then I look at a New York Times bestseller and I don't see our stories there, or I listen to a podcast, a major book review podcast talking about the, the summer blockbusters and Nan One is a Black book, or it's a Black book, but Nan One is a Black woman. I am appalled and offended on the behalf of the many who need us to tell our romances, our science fiction, our memoirs. They need us to make them come alive. And so I am in this place right now where I have no time to waste. That's truly how I feel. I feel like I have no time to waste as a writer. And while it pisses me off that our work won't top the bestsellers list unless a man is choked in the streets, I know that my children and your grandbabies and um, Max's if I have grandbabies, I don't know what Max's decisions are going to be, but I know that there are generations that absolutely need me and you and everyone else to talk into microphones where no one else is listening and to write words that we don't know that anyone else is going to read. There's two things that I want to say. We're almost done with this interview, but I just want to just, just, just say that what you're speaking about now has been so heavy in my spirit for two weeks. Mm-hmm. I was sitting on my couch thinking, I was writing and I was really emotional. Do I have to die in order for my work to be respected? Shoot, girl, yeah. That's a real because there's people out here posting pictures of coffee cups. <laughs> wow, don't get me started. <laughs> Every day they post in a picture of the coffee cup and they, and, and people that aren't there, the, the things that they're sharing are so surface and yet they have millions of followers Yeah, and their books will always be on the New York Times bestseller and they can post a picture of their, their feet, you know, in their flip flops Yeah, or their shoes in the airport <laughs> yeah. and, and it will get thousands of likes. Mm-hmm. And then there are those of us that are speaking our literal hearts, mm-hmm. the ancestors, 
God is speaking through us. Mm-hmm. And we're giving this world everything that's been given to us. Mm-hmm. We're using our gifts, our talents. Yeah. We're not making waste of anything. Mm-hmm. And it may never reach the level of success that that person that gets to post their coffee cup <laughs> and their feet in flip flops. Yeah. It breaks my fucking heart. It, 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 it's, it's so heart-wrenching because I get it. I feel the same way. Trust and believe I feel the same way. Yeah. But the only thing that has kept me going is that Zora Neale Hurston felt the same damn way. Mm. Um, I just read this fantastic essay by Robert Jones Jr. who wrote The Prophets amazing writer like I don't want to say he's James Baldwin of our time he's Robert he's the Robert Jones Jr. of our time if that makes sense he is amazing and he went off social media for the very reasons that we're talking about (laughs) for for many of these reasons like how much and he has a fabulous um, newsletter on some stack and but I read this um essay he wrote about being in an MFA program, a a master's of fine arts program for writing and how those and how truly oppressive those experiences were as a black and also queer writer and didn't throw shade at the things that were good about it, but just told the truth. And one of the things that I never forget in this essay was that he talked about how they had read, you know, everything from Shakespeare, everything from Shakespeare to, you know, um, probably, uh, I'm trying to think of what's a contemporary, like Joyce Carol Oates, whatever, like, you know, from contemporary, from, from Shakespeare to the contemporary classics. And he had read, he was able to read and love those things. But then they had been assigned Toni Morrison, beloved. And these people had the nerve to say that it was overrated, that they, uh, why did they, oh, they struggled to read it. You know what I mean? But you can read Shakespeare. You can figure out Shakespeare, but you can't figure out the dialect of an enslaved tongue. I don't understand like literally you're reading middle english which is basically a whole nother language but you are struggling to appreciate tony morrison which is just it's one of the greatest ghost stories ever told if nothing else you know i mean reading a language oh i'm sorry reading a language this wasn't their first language no they were struggling to communicate Right. Into this American English. Yeah. So it's it's just it's it's but what I so when I think about it, I just remember I listened to a lot of Tressie and Tressie and Cotton's and Roxanne Gay's uh, conversations about it on their Here to Slay. I've, I've listened to so many writers, black writers be able to talk about this fact. I, I hate the fact that, I love the fact, I love when we thrive, don't get me wrong. I love that the 1619 Project is so important, right? But what I really am upset about is that all of our other stories aren't just as important. The academic people, yeah. like, you know, they don't take the rest of our writing just as seriously. Yeah. You know, everyone who, worked on the 1619 project has other work they've written other things beautiful things probably won awards for the stuff that they wrote but mainstream america still may not know them by name but they know the name of this person and that person and it really irritates me because i'm just like we trump them every time. And I think that that probably is the problem. It's like, yeah, it's well, then we never get to complain about anything because there's always going to be a black person who's like, oh, yeah, well, I lost my house. I got a diagnosis. My man then left me. 
and I'm black. So so I, I get it, but I just wish that we, we were the universal because we are, we are until they figure it out. They are always going to struggle. The world will always struggle because it really is that um, the most marginalized, the most marginalized places. So the blackest, queerest, most trans, most poor person. Until we care about that story enough to, that it makes a bestsellers list, and everybody cares about that story and talks about that story, and it's made into a movie, and it's made into a podcast, and it's made into a this, and it's made into a that we're in trouble because we will take, I'm sorry, basic Becky's story will win every single time. Every fucking time. Yep. Will be the cereal that you will need to eat. No sugar. Yeah. (laughs) Every single time. So on page 136 of your book, if it's okay, can I just read my favorite paragraph? One of my favorite paragraphs. hear that on page 136 the chapter is called black mammy beauty and you write so i want to eat fried chicken on the subway and wash it down with grape soda i want to wear my hair coarse twisted puff and fluff i want my afro to be so big that it can't get through doors i want to dance shuck and jive like i do when i'm alone but in public view i want to laugh I want my laugh to sprawl out the loudest cap. I want to rotate my neck and whip my head. I want to paint my full lips a bold red and wear a scarf on my head to work. I want to chew and pop my gum with my mouth wide open. I want to allow my anger to speak louder than its inside voice. I want to smother myself in cocoa butter and glisten like sunlight. I want to have 10 more kids all with the names beginning with La and ending with eh. <laughs> and I want to say y'all and ain't and fix into and girl, please, all the time. I want to wear myself out being as Black as I choose to be and have whiteness be the problem. So <clears throat> when you say, when we're talking about books and the book ban and all the things, when I read this, I said, wouldn't this be the most beautiful black utopia. And when I allow myself to dream, I dream of us living in a black utopia where our bodies are safe, where we can go anywhere we wanna go. We can live where we wanna live. We can run in neighborhoods that we wanna run in. We can walk, you know, with our Skittles and and sweet tea in any neighborhood. We can play, We we can play cops and robbers. We can do all the things. Right. And if we ask for help, we'll be seen as humans. Right not enemies, and our books. You know how the salesmen used to come to the door selling those fucking uh, encyclopedias? (laughs) But instead of those encyclopedias, it would be Black books, Black comedies, Black love stories, Black Mm sci-fi, Black memoirs, Black history. And every house would have a library of our Black stories, our Black creativity. So in my next life, I'll be living in a Black utopia like that. Wow. Yeah. wow. And so I just want to say thank you for writing this amazing, beautiful gift. Everybody come alive. We need it. This will be a part of our Black utopia. Like, like this is one of the books that's, that, that's, that's there. So um, yeah, it just makes me emotional. I just, I just love you. I love this book. Just thank you for being with us with me today. Yeah. I I <laughs> this whole thing and neither one of us cried because I thought for sure. Yeah. I would be balling, but this this it means so much to me. It is, it is truly, I feel like I'm in a black utopia right now. <laughs> like just the two of us. And that is enough. enough. Uh, where can listeners? support your work? I really would love for people to sign up for my newsletter, Black Eyed Stories. A couple of things about that, it's called Black Eyed Stories. If you go to my Instagram or my website, you'll see it there. 
it's where I do my, I write most freely um, because there's, I'm the editor, <laughs> you know, that I share more of myself there than I do. I'm starting to share more of myself there than I will anyplace else. Um, you're not going to see everything. I'm going to tell you right now, I get shadow banned or blocked or whatever on Instagram quite often these days, you know, um, I get the little warning, keep our guidelines or whatever all the time. So if you're really looking to, you like my work and you really want to know me, um, the newsletter, if you can do a paid subscription that helps me tremendously to be able to continue to do the work that I do. Um, if you cannot, there are free subscriptions and you still get a lot of content with that. Um, please buy the book. If you can, buy a couple copies. If you can, buy it from a Black um, bookshop. If you can't, buy it from your local bookstore. If you can't do that, buy it from Walmart. I don't care. <laughs> you know. And order it from your library. Yes. Get copies for your local library. Donate copies to your library. Tell you how exciting it is for me when people post my book and they got it from the library. I was raised on with a bookmobile in our neighborhood. It's a very big deal to me. It's the most exciting thing. So if you can do that, perfect. I would love it. Oh my God, Marcy. I just had this thought in our Black Utopia. We'll have a bookmobile. What there was a bookmobile, but along with the book, you got a side of collard greens and cornbread. Collard greens cornbread. I would love it. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's that's gonna be in our black utopia. Mm-hmm. That's our black utopia for sure. Yeah. Yes. And peach cobbler. Yeah, and well then you need a grape soda. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, Marcy, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Okay. Love you too. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.